asked by Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 about do not neglect your spiritual gift. So why is it that some Christians neglect the spiritual gift they've been given? Okay, Shelley. May not know it. May not know. So how would they find out? I mean, you don't have to answer that. That feels like on the spot. How, how would you go about finding out what your gift is? Everybody has one. You're not sure what it is. How would you find out? Other people noticing it. Okay, that's one of the big ones, right? Is confirmation of the body that if you sense you have gift of music, let's say, other people have the gift of listening to you sing. Uh, if you have the gift of leadership, there's somebody behind you following and not just you're by yourself. Um, I think I shared two weeks ago. Uh, guy named Steve who wanted to always try the gift of teaching it was very evident very soon that was not his gift it was very painful uh, he had a, a remarkable gift for using his hands as a trustee but teaching was not his gift so he didn't get confirmation about it he thought that might be uh-uh sorry <laughs> it's not just your subjective opinion about it it's going to be some others <clears throat> validating yes uh, God used you in that way so those are kind of the main pieces. They're just a desire, um, something you enjoy doing, the opportunity, and then the, when you do plug in, there's confirmation from the body that that ministered them, that encouraged them, that helped. Uh, you should do it again kind of thing. Any other thoughts on how to discover or find out what your gift is? Is, is your gift always something you're good at right at the start, or does sometimes it take practice to get, like this guy, I mean, it, you said he taught and it was evident, but could it have been something, not in his specific case, but in other people it might take a while to Okay, I, to okay that's a great question. Yeah, um, I think we all grow, and, and so if, if you have the raw materials to be, let's say, a singer, um, maybe you need a few more voice lessons or a few more music classes or a few to even get better, but the quality of the voice is there, or the desire to sing to the Lord is there, and then it can grow. But if, if, there's, if you're like tone deaf and can't hold a tune in a bucket, it's probably not your gift no matter how much you want to or how many classes you take. So there's got to be some raw material that the Spirit gives, which of course can grow over time, but it, He doesn't grow something that's not there in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I was thinking about this this guy that maybe it would take a few weeks or months to be comfortable in front of a group or being able to succinctly say what he needs okay, to say. Okay, I see what you that, mean. That yeah, I'm just, I mean, maybe, I, I think after that lesson, I, I just, just wasn't like, oh, Steve, a few more lessons and you got it. It's like, Steve, never, please, never again. You know, so... So, like, to that point, like, how would you explain the difference between, like, we all have gifts, but we also have, like, things that we're commanded to do that we might not be good at, like evangelism or serving or, I mean, they're, they're, how do you, and then, like, so, for example, with this guy, if he had kids, like, we would say we would want him to teach his kids the Bible, so he has to be proficient at some level. So how do we understand the difference between a gift and a command in the Christian life? Okay, that's a great question, because... As Brett pointed out, there are a number of things all believers are called to do, whether you have a specific gift or not for it. So, 
that's a good point. Um, I think a distinction would be, okay, yes, Steve does need to teach his kids the Bible according to Deuteronomy 6. Um, he just might not be as, you know, maybe in just talking, I think he had two kids, Angela, do you remember? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so those two kids, maybe one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two, he can at least limp through it, but maybe in a group setting, it's just not going to work out as well. So that'd be a piece, um, and it might not be the highlight of their day to have Dad <laughs> teach the Bible that evening at family devotions, but, um, but at least he's still called to do it. Um, and hopefully God gives grace for the kids to handle it. Tom? Essentially what we're talking about is fruit. Um, you know, that gift is a, is a gift from our Heavenly Father. Right. And First Corinthians says that the purpose of that is for the edification of the body. <coughs> so God has intent in that gift to be, the gift was given with the intent that it be used for a specific purpose that God has in mind. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of even John 15, that there's, there will be fruit that's evident in our life that that is the gift that God has given us for his intended purpose. So I think part of it is seeing it, you know, other people seeing that, mm -hmm. that fruit mm -hmm. in your life and, and you sensing that fruit. It's like it's kind of like your happy place. That's not a bad way to say it. Yeah. It's like you find the most joy in doing it, and it gives God the most glory in that. Uh huh. Uh huh. No, I like that. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily easy. So let's say you're called to teach um, a small group Bible study. Um, maybe it, the prep time is actually hard work. You know, it's not just like, oh, this is so fun. I love <laughs> having a... But when you actually get together with that group of ladies or that group of men, um, there is a choice. It is your happy place to be there and interact and share the word and, and see people grow. So it's not like all of it's maybe your happy place, but at least when you get to exercise it, it's like, yeah, this feels good to be here, being part of this. Or, or even music, you know. I'm guessing, you know, let's pick on Shelly. Shelly has a gift in singing. But I'm guessing there was, were times where she had to practice that weren't always fun. <laughs> you know, that a song wasn't coming together with her sisters or here at church. But, and so that might not be, oh, this is so happy. You know, we can't seem to get that note right any of the practice times. But once it's time to sing, it is a happy place. Is that the affair? Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments or questions about spiritual gifts? I think our gifts change too, because I used to teach uh, young children, okay. and I just don't have the physical ability right now, you know. But sure. I, I, I can encourage my neighbors and things that uh, that makes a difference too. Okay. Point so. Yeah. Things. I mean, we do change over time. <laughs> Energy levels and all kinds of things change. Any other thoughts? Okay. Well, we uh, move from spiritual gifts into talking in chapter 5 about widows. And um, one of the points we looked at is who is to be first in line in terms of defense, support, safety net for 
widows. Family, so kids, grandkids, other family members are intended to be the first response to a need a widow has. And again, remember, so different in the first century to the 21st century as far as you know, no life insurance, no social security, no uh, special programs to help. You were pretty much on your own. Uh, if your husband died, he was the breadwinner typically, and so where's that support going to come from? And Paul says, uh, first line is children, grandchildren, and by implication, other family members. Um, what are we to think of those who do not provide for their own family? Worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. So, not just, well, too bad it didn't work out that way. It's like, you're worse than an unbeliever. So, pretty strong language. Um, so how, and this is, this is a discussion question. I don't have a, a predetermined answer. Uh, I'd be curious what your thoughts are of the text is specifically about widows, but how would this idea of family first apply to other needs that come up in the church family? Or does it? Can maybe I ask it's a question maybe that goes kind of in the, this. What happens if a wife's husband leaves her? Is she considered a widow? I don't know. I don't think that's the normal word that would be used now or then for that category. I mean, it's sad, to be sure, uh, and it does create some certain needs. Um, I don't know that it would necessarily be under the banner of widow. But let's go to that. Okay, so here's, let's say, a woman whose husband left. She has some needs because he's not paying his child support or his alimony or whatever. What, what, what is the response of the church family at that point? The precedent is the same. It's a need of someone who can't fulfill it and the love of the body should be there whether their spouse died or spouse died. Okay. So what is the role of their family before the church kicks in? And again, we're extrapolating. It's not a slam dunk just from 1 Timothy 5. So I'm just looking for your thoughts. Is there something to glean about other needs than just specific, widow-specific kind of needs? Well, the family should take care of their own so far as they are able. Okay. Okay. Whether it's a widow or a divorce. Right. Any other thoughts? Again, not a not an obvious one. I'm just curious if you saw extensions on that. Well, Paul has some more things to say about widows, so we'll keep going through that. Um, would somebody read nine and ten of chapter five? Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. 
Okay, so that's quite a list. It's quite a, a resume for this widow to be on the list. Where do, where do women like that come from? I mean, that's, that just seems like, wow. <laughs> you know, that's a high level of Christian character and fruit of, you know, grace in their life. How does that happen? Grace of God. Okay, that would be <laughs> the ultimate answer. Because he would have been involved with the church. Well, it sure sounds like there's a lot of connection there, yeah, in terms of washing the saints' feet, hospitality, assisting those in distress, devoting yourself to every good work. I mean, that's a high level. Mark? Um, mine says, uh, known for her good deeds, such as... So it doesn't mean every, it didn't get all those nails on the head. Okay, so th these would be a sample of right. good deeds. Right, of potential okay. good deeds. Okay. Do you think it could imply um, an older woman? Because you would have to be mature and have had time to do those things, you know, and mature in your faith where you, know, you want to do those kinds of things. Because I was thinking there, there are other passages um, that talk about the younger women, mm -hmm. the younger widows versus the older widows. Right, in fact, that's coming in the very next verse is younger widows. So you're right. I mean, age does seem to be at least a piece of it. We're talking about somebody 60 plus. <laughs> so you have a little more time with the Lord and with life experience and more opportunities. So more likely to be able to do those kind of things and inclined to do those kind of things than you might be in a younger season of life. But probably less able to start a business or something to provide for your own needs. You know, at that age, when your husband dies, you know, you're probably less likely to be able, like the younger wife, younger widows could do something like that, maybe. But. Yeah, I think that's possible. And another factor, again, just there's this gap between first century and 21st century, that life expectancy in first century <laughs> anywhere was a lot less than it is now. So somebody making it to 60 in the first century is a very ripe, seasoned, <laughs> older woman. It's not like, oh yeah, there's 60-year-olds all over the place. It's like, wow, they made it to 60, <laughs> you know? Or, you know, for anybody in those days. So uh, maybe just again to keep in mind too that uh, it's not like, oh, 60, I could go start, you know, Angela could go start a business at 60 right now, or 65, um, but maybe not back then. So, you'd be a lot older and less health care available and less other things available. Well, we did bring up younger widows. Let's read about those. Not, um, 11 through 16, please. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ. They want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their privilege, their, their, I'm sorry, their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear fruit, uh, bear children, keep house, and give 
the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And any woman who is a believer, uh, any woman who is a believer has dependent widows. You do it fine. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Okay, so Paul spends a lot of time, like 16 verses, talking about widows, both older ones and younger ones, those with high character qualities, and those who apparently didn't keep those kind of levels of quality. Um, so any questions or comments uh, about what he just said about younger widows? I just see a real contrast here between the younger widows that are not supposed to be on the list mm -hmm. and the older widows that are on the list. Just such a contrast in that character. Right. stuff. I mean, again, we wouldn't necessarily think, well, that's what happens to younger widows, but at least in first century Ephesus, that's what was happening. Brett? Well, wouldn't you say that it's the difference between widows who are following Christ and widows who aren't, regardless of age? Um, but these younger widows, it's not just because they're, they're young widows, but it's that they're walking in a manner unworthy of it almost, and I don't I mean to import a word from our century that maybe doesn't fit, but it's almost like in a, a fight against entitlement. Like just because you're widowed, you can you can be supported by the church, and then you're you're no longer required to do the things that a woman of that century would would do: manage a household, bear children, those types of things. Um, it just seems almost like, well, your husband died, now the church is going to take you on, and you're no longer required to do the good works that you're called to do. And it would seem almost that Paul is saying, don't allow this, don't be so compassionate that you're missing the point that, that they should really continue to pursue good works in this season. I don't know, maybe. Any thoughts or comments on that? I feel like it's a maturity issue. The younger, the younger women are not as mature. They have to learn how to manage at home, how to do all of those types of things. So easily swayed and pulled away possibly as a widow as opposed to ones that that's why he wants them to remarry so they can continue to manage their home to continue to follow the leadership of their husband to maybe continue in that journey that they're supposed to be on as they mature all right any other comments about widows before we move on probably not too many people getting those verses on plaques <laughs> <laughs> Hobby Lobby just not covering or carrying those. So 17 to 22 is about elders again. He spent a lot of time in chapter 3 about elders, and I'm just going to return to that. Somebody read 17 through 22, please. 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, <coughs> and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I'm through 22, please. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit, in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. Okay, thank you. So basically three instructions about elders. One, what does it say about honoring elders? say about accusing elders. <coughs> Evidence from two or three witnesses. Okay, good. And then what does it say about choosing elders? Don't be hasty. Right, don't be too quick to uh, select somebody in that role. So any comments or questions on elders from that passage. Okay, then let's read 23 through 25. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sin of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are that are not, cannot remain hidden. Okay, thank you. So what does Paul say and not say about <coughs> Timothy's stomach issues and other ailments? Man up, it's okay. I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't say man up, okay. <laughs> I hope that's what you meant, is like not say. Yeah, he didn't say that. Quit whining, Timothy. Oh, oh. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Paul is pro medicine. Okay, I think you, you could could make in principle that it's okay to use means that will help a medical condition. You know, so if wine's gonna help a stomach problem, you didn't have Alka Seltzer yet, they didn't have Pepto Bismol yet, wine had some medicinal properties in that situation, so go ahead and have some. Um, if that's going to help your stomach. Karen, did you want to add something? They also didn't have clean water in that day, and that's why a lot of the Europeans drink wine, is because they don't have pure water. I think you could make a case for that, yeah. Or even just, when you, if you travel to a lot of places, Mexico or Africa or okay, but you, you never drink the water, you only drink bottled water. So yeah, clean water is been an issue historically for a long time and is still an issue in a lot of places in this world. Where I was going with doesn't say and with this group that's not as big a deal unless you have friends in those circles and that is he doesn't say well Timothy if you have enough faith you want to have stomach issues. 
you know, there's healing in the atonement. Jesus wants you healthy and wealthy and happy. And so the problem is you, Timothy, you need more faith. Doesn't say that. Uh, and so, again, it, it just helps us shape a theology of healing. You know, we don't want to say God doesn't and can't heal, and he does sometimes just supernaturally, boom. Often he uses means, like medicine or surgery or whatever, um, but he doesn't always heal in this life. And he isn't committed to healing every Christian's sickness or our injury or whatever in this life. And some of our friends in other circles overstate the case like, yes, it's always God's will for every believer to be always healthy, never sick. Uh, sickness is lack of faith, and staying sick is you know, sin because you're not exercising faith. And that can just create all kinds of extra burdens besides being sick at that point. So you've already got stomach issues, and now somebody's saying, well, if you had more faith, Timothy, you'd be better. Uh, that doesn't help. <laughs> so any comments or questions? Maybe you don't know anybody that talks that way or believes that way, and, but they're, they're out there, and um, we just need to be aware of, you know, graciously how to respond to that, because that can really be a burden on people, to be told, if you have enough faith, you'll get better, or your loved one will get better. Certainly like Job's friends. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, and I actually read a book um, where Job, Job's problem was he didn't have enough faith. If he would have enough faith, he, the boils would have gone away and everything else would have been all better. Like, no, <laughs> that's not how this works. But his friends were saying, yeah, if you just repent, you'll get better. Uh, obviously, it's sin in your life, so get, get right and things will be okay. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Well, let's go to chapter 6, 1 and 2 then. So let me read the first two verses. All, <clears throat> all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Thank you, Mark. So what kinds of work did slaves do in the first century Roman Empire? Okay, hard labor and virtually everything else. Doctors, teachers. Doctors, teachers, child care, housework, outside work, storekeepers. Virtually all labor that was done in first century Roman Empire was done by slaves. Uh, it's estimated between one-third and one-half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And 100% of the work was done by slaves. So... I think we need to remember that because we typically think, okay, American slavery, hard work in the cotton fields, 
And, and that's all we're talking about. And this is like anybody who does anything <laughs> that needs to get done is in this umbrella. And so I think it's a legitimate application to, to say these are instructions for employees or workers now in the workplace and with their bosses. Um, it's not 100% parallels, of course. Slaves have different rights and things than, than a worker now. You, a slave couldn't just quit, <laughs> say I'm done, here's my two weeks notice, or less, uh, I'm out of here, you're committed. So there's some differences, but in terms of the people that are doing work, Paul has some specific instructions for as Christians. So, um, so how are Christian employees to regard their bosses? They're to honor them so that God is honored. Okay, good. I, you went right to my next one as far as what's at stake. And so it's not just I might get fired or um, I might not get a promotion or I might not get a raise. It's the reputation of God is on the line by how I treat my boss. And maybe you weren't thinking of that as you go to work tomorrow morning. <laughs> but you, we need to. That there's something bigger at stake than just how I thrive in this job. It's how is God's reputation and the doctrine that we teach going to be seen as reflected by how I treat my boss. Um, how should Christian employees regard Christian bosses? Kind of like the elders earlier where you say you give them double honor. I don't, that doesn't say the same thing, but you give them as much or more. Right, but not less, but more, right. Yeah. So how many of you have a Christian boss? Okay, a number of you. And how many of you have not Christian boss? Okay, also a number of you. Um, so you'd think it'd be easier to honor a Christian boss than a non-Christian boss, but uh, apparently Paul had to write, don't take advantage just because your boss is a Christian, like I can get away with something because they'll give me slack because I'm a Christian sister or a Christian brother. But either way, we're to honor our bosses. Um, any, anybody want to just show, maybe it's too embarrassing, but like, how many have a, a boss that's easy to respect and honor? Okay, a number of you. How many, it's maybe need a little grace <laughs> to honor your boss? Depends on the day. Depends on the day, that's fair, that's fair. Okay, so again, I just love how practical the Bible is, like, okay, 40, 50, 60 hours of, of our waking hours are spent in some kind of job setting and the Bible has a lot to say about what that looks like for a Christian. And so let's look at four other passages that address that subject. Um, so let's go to Ephesians 6 and somebody read 5 through 8. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, 
render service as to the Lord and not come in. Well, could you also do through nine? I'm sorry. Yeah, knowing that whatever, knowing that whatever, whatever good things each one does, this one will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Thank you. And then, um, so any observations about how we're to do our work as Christians in the workplace from those verses? What does Paul add that he didn't say in 1 Timothy? Pastor, one, one comment that I'll just add in here is that I've read a lot of leadership books, <laughs> the role of work and so on, and this is the best leadership advice. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To your question, Pastor, what he expands on in Ephesians is to, I guess it would get at the motive of your service, that you're to serve well, not so people would think well of you, but so that you would honor Christ in your service. Good, good. Yeah, I service is the idea of when the boss is watching, oh, aren't you productive <laughs> and amazing? But when they're not looking, that's what matters, Paul says, because Christ is watching. <laughs> He's your ultimate boss, so do it well as unto him, not just to keep the boss happy. Good. I remember a, a, a story about a factory in Milwaukee, and... Uh, they had a meeting, the, the foreman says, okay, guys, you know, the quality's been slipping, and I just want you guys to work just as hard when I'm around as when I'm not, or when I'm not around as when I'm there. And he says, so how's that going to happen? And one of the employees says, if you let us know when you're coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, there is a tendency to do eye service, and even for Christians, and that's why Paul had to address it. Do it for the Lord, not just for your boss. Okay, let's go to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Okay. So, any thoughts on those verses? We're always ultimately working for the Lord. Yeah. And that should be our focus and perspective. you were here when I preached this passage a couple years ago, I told this story about Bertulli, who was the sculptor in France who made the Statue of Liberty. And he spent just an incredible number of hours on the torch and her hair, which in those days there's no helicopters, there's no anything that's going to ever see that. You know, from the ground you would not see the detail that he's putting into that. And so somebody asked him, why are you working so hard on, on those things when nobody's ever going to see it? He said, God sees it. Mm -hmm. So he got Colossians 3. <laughs> I'm working for the Lord. 
I care about quality because he cares about quality, and whether men see it or not doesn't matter. I'm, I'm doing it to be approved by him. So that's kind of the mentality we want to have. Any other thoughts on Colossians before we go on? Let's go to Titus. Would somebody please read 9 and 10? Titus 2, 9 and 10. bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Um, what does it mean to adorn? Put on. Okay, put on. Put on what? or decorative okay so it look better yeah so a typical way to be like beautiful fresh flowers adorned the bride's hair so the bride's hair already fancy for the wedding but adding beautiful flowers just makes it that much more attractive so working hard and with a good attitude is a way of calling attention to the beauty of the gospel that we teach okay. so it's an added um, added pointer to our witness for Christ is how we do our work. Any other thoughts on Titus? All right, one more. First Peter two eighteen. First Peter two eighteen. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay. I have shared that verse with a number of men over the years because it seems like uh, there's a lot of uh, bosses who aren't necessarily good and gentle, that they can be unreasonable, and the verses apply whether they're great, wonderful guys or not. We're still called to treat bosses in a certain way, and not just, well, they're not very nice to me, so I'm going to treat them badly. So, again, just the realism of the Bible. <laughs> you know, it recognizes some bosses are going to be harder to work for than others. That doesn't matter. You're still called as a Christian to work in a certain way as to the Lord and do your work for Him, ultimately, not just for the paycheck or for the anything else. So any comments or questions on the Christian in the workplace? That's where many of you will be all week. <laughs> so it's good to know what the Bible says. A lot of this is the relationship between the like, employee and the employer, but it can also uh, add a lot of strength to your witness in the workplace with your peers and Working in a, a contractor could be anybody, right? If they see you handle a situation in an appropriate fashion, with all due respect, even though somebody else may not be, um, that's a, an excellent witness. You can open doors. For sure. Right. Any other thoughts? 
Okay, that's really probably a good place to cut off even though we have a couple minutes left. Um, the next section seems to go together, so I think we'll just go ahead and wrap it up for this morning. And so, Mark, would you lead us in prayer? Lord, you're so good to us. You, you provide us work to do. Um, you give us talents to do that work. Um, give us the right hearts to serve those who are above us, those who provide a paycheck for us as we serve, uh, endeavor to serve them, and help us to shed the right light, the, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, let us serve well in whatever we do, whether it's uh, for monetary things or for serving at the church, whether we are elders or just the average parishioner. And uh, we're all special in your sight, and we all long to please you and to be a light into the world by what we say and what we do. We thank you for this, and we give you all the glory. And we ask you now to watch over Pastor as he uh, preaches a sermon, and we thank you for uh, his preparation. Uh, this doesn't just happen uh, in a vacuum. He works hard, as we were talking earlier about... Uh, he may have a gift, but he still has to do the drudgery. And we thank you for his persistence in that. We ask for all these things to be blessed in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.